I'm Connor O'Shea. Welcome to another episode of the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast. This week, Eddie and myself are chatting to a man we've both faced on the touchline and our close friends. And I looked at my eight-year-old daughter at the time, and I just looked at her and shrugged my shoulders. And she said, Dad, he said he's the plumber. He's come to fix the toilet. He just needs to know where it is. <laughs> yes, it's former Ireland and Leinster head coach Joe Schmidt. Join us to give an insight into the way he works. We talk about his rise from school teacher to beating the All Blacks. And Eddie and Joe recall what it's really like when they face each other. This is the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast. Joe, Eddie, welcome. Thank you, Joe, for, for joining us on this. And uh, we've been through through lockdown, you know, talking about our kind of experiences and everything in rugby. And today, I think it's unbelievable privilege for me to be talking to arguably two of the greatest coaches the game has ever seen. And you know, thank you for sharing, taking the time, Joe, for coming on board. But um, uh, it's very much a chat. It's probably the worst I- TV interview you've ever done. So there'll be nothing <laughs> controversial. There'll be nothing, uh, nothing too targeted. It's just sharing experiences, really. Uh, some of them anecdotes and stories, but also just giving some insight into some of the coaches that will be listening in to us. And I'm always fascinated. And we'll, we've heard probably enough from myself and Eddie over the last number of weeks. But your whole coaching journey, which you've gone through a million times, you've written the book, you've talked about it, but just to share with maybe some of the people in the community game over in England, the where it started, because down in Mullingar, is at Wilson Hospital, and <laughs> how, how, did, how did the boy from New Zealand end up starting his coaching career uh, in some ways in Ireland, in a, in a lowly club, club rugby? Well, yeah. I mean, Mullingar probably wouldn't perceive themselves to be lowly. But, um, I got myself into trouble already, you yeah. see, first time. <laughs> yeah, no, look, you, you'll, you'll get a few stones thrown from Westmead. <laughs> but, um, it's a long way across the channel. Yeah, yeah, you're safe um, until you come back. But I, I, uh, you know, I was a school teacher. Um, I was playing first class rugby for a province called Manawatu at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I did write about it. The, the principal at the time when I first went in, I was also, I'd done the preseason with, a with a, a national league basketball kind of set up. And when I was told I had to be involved in the co-curricular life of the school, I said, look, I'll, I'd love to coach basketball. And he said, that's perfect. Basketball's on Friday nights. It won't affect your rugby coaching on Saturday mornings. And so I was seconded to coach rugby straight away. I was a little bit scared to say, well, hang on, I didn't offer to do the rugby. Um, and so it, may, it meant the, the weeks were very busy, but I think there's a bit of crossover. No matter what you're coaching, whether it's basketball or rugby or, or whatever team sport, I think there's real crossover. And so I, I enjoyed doing both. It just meant that I was busy, that's all. Um and it kind of grew from there. Um, snapped my Achilles tendon a couple of times. Um, ended up taking the, the kind of first 15 or senior senior cup team. And um, we made a couple of national finals and ended up being involved with New Zealand school boys. And then ended up being involved with Bay of Plenty. Then, then the Blue Super Rugby and Claremont and Leinster and Ireland and retirement. Retirement never. Who, when you look back at yourself as the the coach that you you became, and you look back at those first steps, how how did you coach a team? Uh, did was it with the same sort of intensity, direction? Where did you learn to get into the detail that you would 
later become when you started coaching professionally, so to speak, when you were looking at the, the Claremonts, the Leinster. So like, what, what um, type of coach were you? Yeah, th- you are a product of whatever you've been exposed to, really, I think, Connor. So, um, you know, I had some really good coaches when I was when I was playing. And, um, you know, technically, Mark Donaldson was really good. Um, I had a, Garth, a guy called Garth Tallene who was such a top bloke. Everyone w- would have died for him, you know. So trying to meld the technique with a, a person who's a leader and who promotes a really positive team environment. Um, and, and then on top of that, uh, New Zealand, I think, have some really good um, coach development opportunities. So, being able to get along and and do sessions with Wayne Smith involved, or, or Frank Oliver involved, or or whoever, um, and even you know sports psychology with Dave Hadfield. Um, when when I first got started, it, it was it was like this massive opportunity to get some growth and, and take as many things on board and then, then kind of formulate uh, a way of doing things. Um, I, I was an English teacher, so I, I actually taught media studies in the school. So we had an editing suite. So I'd take the video in from the, from the weekend's game and I'd put the other video in and I'd put a few highlights on it um, or lowlights as the case may be. And so I'd have, three or four minutes of footage and, you know, I'd, I'd show them at interval to the boys and then set up our training for the week and, and, and we'd work like that. So that w- that was a long time ago. That's before we used computers and cut games up and, and things like that. It was fairly rudimentary, but um, it helped give a direction. And, and I think as long as you make it fun and as long as players think uh, they can enjoy making some progress then then it's enjoyable for most people do you do you think i mean eddie just talking to because joe talking about his teaching background and your teaching background and obviously i'm a i'm an outlier i'm not i'm never a teacher not able to communicate properly um how many it's it's unbelievable the number of teachers that have actually made it to the very highest level of the game Uh, now i know you could say that's a product of it's a school system but how much do you think, uh, Eddie, the, the teaching has given you that background to communicate properly to, to young players? Well, Joe's a bit more educated than me. He was an English teacher. I was a PE teacher. And I yeah, hold a second. Hold a second, Eddie. He said he taught media <laughs> studies as well. And look, look at him in the media. So let's not talk about that. Yeah, but I think uh, a lot of teachers became cases because it was a product of the time. Uh, the game went professional and because you had some sort of methodology about the way you taught, it gave you a bit of head start with coaching. So, you know, Australia, we didn't have great coaches. Like, we were lucky at my club. We had Bob Dwyer and a, a bloke called Jess Sale. But generally, the standard of coaching wasn't great in Australia at that time. And and they got beaten. I remember Australia got beaten by Tonga in 1974 and it started a whole thing about coaching. So I think being a teacher was was definitely an advantage back there. And you've you've both done as well in terms of your formative coaching, the and probably not so formative, Joe, in, the, in terms of the Claremont ex, uh, experience for you. But you know, Eddie in Japan, Joe, you you're in in France, I suppose I could say in Italy for a few years. Joe, just the the whole communication side of things. How did that how did that help and develop you by being in France? Uh, yeah, it was it was a nightmare. Um, you know. 
I, I was hesitant about going, but we felt it would be a good experience for the family, different culture, different language, but trying trying to coach in a different language. And the, so I, I didn't use a, an interpreter. I was getting four lessons a week um, with, with my prof. And, uh, you know, it, it is, I loved it. It was a, an opportunity for me to develop myself. Not only that, you had to become, I think, more aware of how you were communicating. Um, you had to be, I think, more concise about what you delivered. So it was brilliant for me. Um, I remember one day um, I, I had this kid, uh, Tom Akombazu, his name was, and he was a, a super young kid. He, he still plays for Cast. I, I think it's still Cast that he plays for. He's he's won a top 14, uh, a Boucler de Brunus. But he, um, his nickname was Poulet Santet, chicken without head. And he would fly around all over the place. Incredible enthusiasm. But uh, I, I was trying to get him to hit uh, a square, a line. And I, I said to my prof, you know, how do I say this? And uh, he, he said to me, probably the easiest, most direct way to say it is, il faut rentrer bien droit. And so, il faut, it's necessary, rentrer bien the line, bien droit, well straight. So I practiced that during the lunch hour and I, uh, I, we were doing a bit of a backs drill and uh, I called Toma aside and I said, Toma, il faut rentrer bien droit. And uh, I thought, wow, that's so cool. I'm so French. And, uh, and he said to me, oui, mais pourquoi? Yes, but why? I said, well, I don't know. I can't say anything else, Toma. That's, I've used up my language. <laughs> um, so it, it teaches you, uh, you can't bluff. You can't bluff players. You've got to be prepared for responses, and um, and and there's coach coach learning in that as well. You know, it's it. I remember three four months into to my time in Italy, going back, and I've said this to Eddie a number of times, going back and meeting him for a coffee in Richmond to ask about his experiences in Japan and how he got yeah. on with language. It's exactly what he said. What actually happens by going to a foreign country where you don't speak the language? you stop bluffing and you start speaking yeah. more concisely because you've no other option. You don't have the language to bluff. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the transference of information, um, you know, gets enhanced if, if, if you work really hard, I think it's, it's hard to coach in a different language. Um, and it's hard to accept that your kids are so much better at the language than you are, even though you're trying really hard, their accent, their, theirs is organic mine's very organized in how I learn. And so, yeah, it was always frustrating getting corrected by them uh, continuously in, in, you know, the pronunciation of the language, but they were an asset as well. Um, I, I remember one day uh, an artisan turned up at the door and uh, I opened the door, he knocked on the door. I said, bonjour, monsieur, because like I was French and uh, he said, bonjour, monsieur, and a whole lot of other stuff. And I looked at my eight-year-old daughter at the time and I just looked at her and shrugged my shoulders. And she said, dad, he said, he's the plumber. He's come to fix the toilet. He just needs to know where it is. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it keeps you, it keeps you humble. Um, when your kids are, are, are helping you out. Have you, uh, and to both of you, but I need to start examples are not, not named, but do you see, have you seen coaches not immerse themselves? I, I go back to even thinking of a football example, and this is before I went to Italy, of a 
uh, a football manager who went to Spain, but he lived in a hotel. He never immersed himself in the culture, in the uh, in in the what the way the society was, and he was always looked on as transient. So, do you think, uh, well, Eddie and Joe, that that's a massively important thing for people to show, and that's the same when you move to Ireland. It's not just because it's a foreign language; it's when you go somewhere, you immerse yourself in it. Don't laugh at Ireland, yeah. Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not going to say anything there, mate. Uh, yeah, no. I always found in Japan it's fun, a funny little thing, but you could almost tell if a person had tried to eat with chopsticks, they were going to they were going to have a successful time there because they wanted to be part of the culture. And and Japan eating's a a big ritual, so to indulge in eat or to learn to to eat with chopsticks gave a pretty good indication of whether the person was going to be a successful player or coach. And I'm sure it's the same in other countries. There'll be something that indicates the desire to be one of the become because you've got to become part of it don't you you got to you got to live it and you got to show you care for the players joe yeah and i i think it's the same for the players Eddie, isn't it, it, it you know yeah. we had some players in claremont we had uh i think 11 or 12 different nationalities and, and some of them would come in and after three years they they could say uh comment ça va you know how's it going but that was about it um and and that would frustrate me a little bit because you're part of integrating genuinely integrating into the team is is being able to transfer information um and and not expect everyone to meet you uh in an english-speaking way or a, a, a georgian or whatever the language um, although the Georgians were very fluent, um, the, the, the two front rowers we had, um, it, it just, it's part of it as well, I think. And it, it also demonstrates to the, to the, the other players that you are making a, you're making an effort, you're making a commitment. And I'm going to bring you on then to your arrival to Leinster, Joe. And <laughs> uh, we've talked about kind of sliding door moments in your, in your life, in your rugby career. And I'm going to, um, I remember I used to sit in a TV panel with a guy called George Hook and he had a good, good old go at this young, young Kiwi coach who had arrived in and lost his first couple of games in charge of Leicester. And yep. I'm not going to ask about that. I'm asking about the player group. And maybe it's not just a Leicester thing, but you, we have these ups and downs, but there, there comes pivotal games and moments in your coaching career that shape what your future is like. And you know, a lot of that is defined by luck as well as by the effort that you put in. Can you think back to maybe that moment at Leinster where you start off, you're with this high profile team, European champions, uh, you know, beginning to become dominant. They lose a couple of games. How does that feel when you're, when you're in that place? Yeah, it's a tough place to be. Um, they thankfully they weren't European champions the the, the previous year and and yeah. uh, you know that probably it's tough to take over a championship uh, winning side even tougher but you know and I, I don't know what maybe George was upset about we only lost five of our first six games um, <laughs> and two of those though were preseason so I don't count those um, but we did lose three of the next four. Um, and and it was the way we lost the fourth one. We lost away in Edinburgh. They got the bonus point. We just missed the bonus point, scored a late try, 
through Luke Fitzgerald that Ian Madigan didn't quite get the conversion or was quite wide out. Um, but I, I remember the players actually coming to me and saying, look, we really enjoy what we're doing. We think we're going to get better at this. It's the right thing for us. Because I, I was looking at that game thinking, right, we need to simplify what we're doing. We need to kind of limit our options. And and and, and they said the, the opposite. And we went out the following week and, um, and and we beat Munster in the Viva, and it was a it was a full uh, full stadium, and then then we beat Russing, and then the following week we went away and beat Saracens in Wembley, and and suddenly, you know, in the space of three weeks, um, you know, the the whole picture has changed, and and by the end of the season you you've won Europe, and and, and people are happy again. And how much of that in your in your coaching, do you say, this is my way and I'm, how much do you evolve as a coach? How much do you evolve your game plan? Or do you say, listen, this is what I'm good at. This is what I want the team to deliver. And I'm going to live and die by that. Or, you know, what, what is that in your mind? Uh, I think for coaches and, and if there's young coaches um, who are watching, I, I wouldn't have necessarily a, you know, people say you've got to have a philosophy. I, I wouldn't really have a philosophy and I wouldn't, I, I'm not a goal setter. I, I, I believe that you just kind of build a foundation and, and be, you know, really solid um, in, in the basics that you can deliver and allow the players to grow kind of through that effectively. Um, when I first came to Leinster, I, I'd never been the, the boss of a big team before. And I said that to the, to the players I met. And um, I, I, I asked them, what, what do you want from me? What do you expect from me? And they, they actually said, you know, we've seen how Claremont play. We see with the width, the width they play with. Um, you know, we, we want to be able to play with that sort of width and, and with that freedom. And I, I said, look, I'll, I'll try to help you with that as, as best I can. Um, and, and that's where it kind of started. So... It, it was it, it, it was player driven a little bit right from the start. Yeah, Eddie, what what are your thoughts on that? On that coaching philosophy or not having a philosophy, so to speak, if that's the, if that's the right phrase. Yeah, no, I agree with what Joe said. I think think you got to have an idea in your head, um, and that comes as as Joe said previously about your education as a player. You know, I was educated under Bob Dewey, so we always wanted to attack and we wanted to play flat to the gain line. And so I like my teams to play like that, but I don't force them to play like that. Um, now, if we can move towards playing like that, then it's great. But you've got to allow the players to develop where where they're comfortable. Um, and I think the higher you get in coach, the more it's about the players. You know, when you, you're coaching a team with less skills, you've got to direct them more. When you're coaching a, a team with good skills, you've got to guide them more. Um, and that's that's the balancing act of, of knowing when to give them a bit and knowing when to, to let them run with it. Okay, I have, a, I have a quick bone to pick them with Joe because they always say never... <laughs> as you're talking about dealing with good players, they say never never get the All Blacks in a backlash. So uh, Ireland's very first and famous victory against the All Blacks uh, way back was followed the following week by Italy having to play the All Blacks. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. It was lovely. Thank you very much for that. Um, just 
And what was the score? Uh, of the All Blacks game against Ireland. Can't remember that one exactly. <laughs> well, the Italian guy. Excuse me? Uh, no, that was... We, we were we were lulling South Africa to a false sense of security to beat them the following week. It was good, a cunning, good, good. cunning plan yeah. by the Italians. Comings um, and goings, mate. Yes, moving on. Um, that week, Joe, like you're around so long in a, in a, in a setup and you've had the... I'm trying to think of the history now, the heartache of the Ryan Crotty, uh, like last minute try. You've you've all these kind of ups and downs that you've had. You've got that build up in that week in Chicago, pretty unique with the Irish community there. Probably there are matches you want so much and that was something that you're you're aiming at. Um, How much do you control that week yourself? How much do you devolve to the other coaches is it different uh, emotionally if you're invested do you stay the same in terms of your prep yeah I, I personally think it's it's pretty important to have a, a familiarity in the week if you can uh, you know because you want to take them outside their comfort zone but you've got to give them something that's a bit comfortable so you, you pick and choose when they're going to be uncomfortable that, that particular week um, we'd only just got together. We got together on the Sunday, trained on the Monday, flew out um, on the Tuesday, had a day off on the Wednesday. We trained on the Thursday, trained awfully on the Thursday, um, really badly. And I remember sitting with the coaches and saying, look, do we give it to them between the eyes? or we do, do we gloss over this a bit to keep confidence levels up? And in the end, we decided, look, we've got to give it to them between the eyes. Otherwise, we could cop uh, a, a real hiding here. So I remember before the captain's run, we sort of said, look at this, look at this. We, we have got to be nailed on in these, in, in these facets of the game or, or it's going to be ugly. And um, the captain's run went quite well. They had to bring it forward. Uh, the captain's run was meant to be kind of mid-morning, but in the end, we did it at 9am because the Cubs had won the World Series. Um, they were expecting 5 million people in the middle of Chicago. I think it was the seventh ever, um, seventh biggest ever human gathering. Um, so by the time we were coming back, uh, they took us under the city, really, uh, next to the railway line. And then we were coming back through and we were passing under bridges and getting huge rounds of applause. They obviously knew we were going to win the next day or they'd mistaken us for the Cubs coming into town. I think it was probably the latter. But um, the Chicago people were um, on a massive high. And uh, being in the middle of it was meant that, that things were quite buoyant anyway. Um, and it was a brilliant week of weather, uh, you know, early 20s, um, and the game itself, the All Blacks had played the, the rugby championship. They had a real rhythm to what they were doing. They'd scored a bonus point win in every round of the rugby championship. So it was incredible. Um, two games against all the teams and, and three against the Australians. So, you know, for us, they conceded five tries across the whole rugby championship. And um, so if we had a nervous group of uh, of young players, um, but there were some special moments. Joey Carberry, uh, who came on and closed the game at the end, he had his twenty first birthday in Chicago Cut Restaurant, in 
you know, he'll never forget that because four days later he played the last 20 minutes with a plomb and, uh, and guided the team home. So there's some, yeah, super uh, special memory. Well, you talk about the momentum. This is to both of you. Um, my memory of that game, you have to now forgive me because this is going off the, off the back of a few years, is Ireland getting penalties and kicking for the corner. Uh, not taking the points all the time. And was that a plan almost going, well, we have to score tries. We're not going to beat the All Blacks by going 3, 6, 9, 12. Um, um, yeah, we, we did a little bit, but we... We didn't do it all the time. The, the no, not all the time. Not all yeah, the time. But the first yeah. try by Geordie Murphy. Um, uh, there was a kick to the corner. It was quite a long way out. But it, it's what Eddie said. Uh, the players decide that. I mean, between Rory Best and and Johnny Sexton, they they kind of made a decision that day. Pete Omani wasn't playing that day, uh, so um, you know they were they were the two guys who who would have made most of those decisions and um i think i think bestie probably said what do you think they would often between the the three of them they would often have a plan before the game that didn't that didn't come from the coaches that those players would get together and they'd say righto you know anything between the 15s let's put that in the corner you know uh between the 15 and the touchline anywhere in the middle of the field between the two 15s let's uh you know let let's have a shot at that if it's inside the 40 metre or, or whatever. How much of that ability to allow players make decisions is borne by the experience you know they have and the trust you have in them? And uh, Eddie, I'd both of you to answer that question. Yeah, I think uh, experience is a massive thing, and particularly in Test Rugby. Yeah, the experience of two or three players counts for so much. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree with Eddie, obviously, um, because th- then you can extend that trust absolutely. You know? but, yeah, but I suppose the, the question is then from a coaching perspective, uh, and maybe this is exactly what Eddie said earlier on about as you go up through the ranks, it becomes more about the player, less about the coach, even though it's all about the, the, the coach. That's why we're sitting, we're sitting here talking. But when do you become less directive? When, when have you found yourself being less directive as a coach? Uh, were you very directive in your formative years with younger teams because they need that direction and less as you get, as you go up through the ranks or what, what's that kind of continuum for you? Yeah, I, I, I don't know with Eddie, but, but for me, it, you know, it's fluctuated to be honest. Um, even with some of the young teams that we had, we had some really good players who, almost needed their head and they don't learn if they don't have the the freedom to express themselves a bit and to, and to make some decisions on the pitch. And sometimes the decisions aren't great and, and, and that's a good learning opportunity as well. And, and sometimes the decisions are, are spot on that the thing that I probably hate sometimes is people say, Oh, that's a terrible decision when the space was there, but the execution wasn't quite right. And they say, oh, they shouldn't have run it there or they shouldn't have kicked it there. But, but it, was, it was perfect. I, I, I look back to that, that, um, that game probably just like we had a, a game we don't want to kind of remember from the World Cup. The, the one for Eddie with South Africa right at the start of the game. England tried to shift it 
in their own in goal, I thought was brilliant. I, I, there was one inaccurate pass. Johnny May still got out, I think, to the 22, Eddie. But mm. if that actually linked with that pass, they had the, the, the South African defence and they would have had them in all sorts of trouble. But then, you know, it's identifying it. But in those big moments, execution, um, you know, you live and die by the, the quality of that execution. Yeah, I, I, I got kind of add to that and say, if I was talking to a player after a game, if it's a decision made without rationale or reason, then you'd be annoyed. But if there is a, a, a some sort of rationale behind what they're doing, they can explain. Well, you can't just go on hindsight and say it's wrong because this happened. It's yeah. that's what you saw. Yeah. That's what it's about. Um, for Eddie's given us an insight over the past number of weeks on players that have helped shape his teams. Any examples, and I'm not going to allow you to use Brian O'Driscoll as an example, so you have to think outside the box here, or Gordon Darcy, or Johnny. Okay, there's three gone. Um, give me a player that you really uh, have always found fundamental to your, I have someone in mind for you, I'm just wondering, will you say it, um, fundamental to what you do on the pitch, that he's almost your coach on the pitch uh, for you, and it's kind of glued it together. Um, I think for me, especially coming into East, uh, coming into Leinster and not knowing the players as well, I'd coached Eason if they were for three years in Super Rugby and the Blues, so I used Eason very much as a as a conduit for um, kind of some of the coaching messages because I've, I felt we were very aligned and he had huge respect in the group. You know, it's hard. You know, not to use uh, someone like like Johnny, who was the hub. Um, Owen Redden is another guy who, you know, uh, or even Isaac Boss. Th- those guys who are your nine, ten. It- it's hard to get away from those two. But certainly, when I first came into Leinster, um, Eason Athewa was was pivotal because it didn't matter what part of the game, e- Eason was incredibly effective. Collision tackler clean out, ball carrier, incredibly good in the air, skillful, kick pressure goals, um, passing game. So he had he had universal respect because sometimes, you know, someone like, like Dricko is incredibly physical for a guy his size. The forwards all respected how, how, how physical he could be and it, it was a bit like that with Issa as well. So, you know, but there are so many really good players that I've, I've benefited from their abilities being able to, to map a, a plan for a game. I mean, what, a, what a great player he was, eh? Jeez, yeah. he could play the game. Who's that? Isa. Isa, uh, yeah. He yep. could do everything, couldn't he? Yep. Yeah. Anywhere, any position. Yeah. Absolutely. And and he was the, he was actually the person I was thinking of when I asked that question. Uh, like you you lit, you got this person that uh, he was fundamental to everyone. Like when all your internationals are away, he kept the team together. When all your internationals are back, he'd play wherever they yep. you needed him to play to make the team fit. Eddie, do you I mean, forget the England team, because it's all who who fits that bill for you in your in your coaching career? Uh Look, mate, one of the guys I was lucky enough to coach was George Smith. Um, he just knew the game. You could play him six, seven or eight. You tell him one thing, 
he never had to tell him again. He'd just get on with it. Hardly ever spoke, but everyone admired him. Everyone wanted to work with him. Everyone wanted to have a drink with him. Sometimes that would go a bit too long. But uh, <laughs> it was just one of those great players, you know, that that could play the game, feel the game. You know, and that's I think that's the hardest thing now, that kids coming up, are we giving them enough opportunity to feel the game? Are we giving them too much instruction at an early age? Because there's such a pressure on on school teams to win. I don't know whether it's like that in Ireland, Joe. Yeah, yeah. I I agree with you, Eddie. I I, I think that that ability to self-solve, um, you know, that, that's what I said before about um, do you give more direction to younger players? Sometimes you don't because you want them to learn from experiences or you construct scenarios at training where um, they get the opportunity to, to, to be the decision maker and, and execute under pressure and, and, and learn from those experiences. Uh, listen, as ever, I, I think I could go on forever just talking to, to you two guys. I have one more question for for both of you at the end of it. And maybe actually there's a couple that I should actually give on the um, – one last question at the very end. But these are two questions that have come in from rugby coaches, so I better ask these. What piece of advice – I'll ask this to Joe because probably Eddie's asked this in the past, answered this in the past. What piece of advice would you now go back and give yourself starting out on your coaching journey? Um. Wow, that's that's a really good question. Um, yeah, it wasn't my question. Yeah, That's the first time you've said that. Cheers to that, Joe. Lovely. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, he well, knew what yeah. he was saying as well. You knew what you were saying. Yeah, yeah no, put me down. Lovely. Yeah, yeah. Without, without being um, too reflective in depth, uh, I, I would just say ref, enjoy it more. I, I, I think... Yo, you're so emotionally connected. I remember very early on, we lost a game to Gisborne Boys High, and I thought I'd, I thought we should have won the game, and I thought I was the major reason why we didn't because we didn't chance our arm enough, and they were too big and physical, and they had some good backs, guys like Rico Gear and 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 the like, but they had a massive, big. You know, kind of powerful forward part pack, and um, I remember just thinking that it, it was so miserable. Where I, I think I think I should have I should have enjoyed it more um, on the way through, and even even right to the finish. You know, I I felt so much pressure all the time, and that people. I, I remember uh, I was speaking to. Um, some elite sports coaches in Ireland and uh, we'd lost the game and they said, oh, but surely you don't feel pressure because of, you know, all the games that you've won. And I said, no, you feel more and more pressure the, the more games you do win. And I, I, I don't know. I, I think sometimes I put so much pressure on myself. I, I wasn't enjoying the, the job. I'll tell you, you feel pressure when you lose a lot of games as well. You'll just let you into that secret, but that's an aside. Um, what, what could, what would coaching of the future look like with technology advances? Is it for Eddie or for me? No, for well, Joe. for both Definitely of you. But we'll go with you. <laughs> Joe. Joe's a guest. He's got to go first, mate. Uh, look, I, for me. Um, I, I use technology a lot 
uh, you know, going through the premiership games in the weekend, um, you know, some of the decision-making or some of the technique or, or, or whatever, uh, I, I'm not involved directly with the game now, but I, I'm watching it closely. But for me, I'm a massive fan of the coaching, the coaching eye. When we're training, seeing things and being able to provide live feedback to players, uh, hold your run, stay squarer, uh, you've got to work harder on the ground or lower your body height or just dropping the odd word in in the flow of training. I, I think that's, if you can be accurate doing that without overstating it or over trying to contribute, you know, that's not, that's actually further away from technology, but we all rely on feedback and being able to get real time adjustment. Uh, you know, that that's where I think, um, you know, watching, watching guys like, like Pep Guardiola take a session or, or Wayne Smith take a session. They're so astute and so concise and accurate with just those little cues that allow a player to slightly adjust and and improve a, a performance objective. That that would be my thought. Eddie? Yeah, no, I think Joe summed it up pretty well. Uh, look, technology is a great accelerator, um, and there'll be ways that it, that it hastens the analysis, but it never beats quality observation. And I reckon for a young coach now, they've got to spend more time learning how to observe because... Because of the way we live our lives and we move quickly from one thing to the other, yeah, you know, I, I find with coaches now, you ask them something, they say, "Well, I have to watch the video," and I say to them, "You just watched it. You just watched it. What yeah. did you see? I've got to watch the video. <laughs> no, you don't. You got to watch it, and I and you got to train your eye because it's it's not it's not something that can come naturally. You, sometimes you have to work really hard at it, and if you're lucky to have a mentor to tell you what to see. Then it, then it helps that process, but couldn't agree more with what Joe said. Uh, and just listen, Joe, to give you a time like this uh, to us, thank you so much. I know people will, I think what people don't see, and I've mentioned about Eddie meeting me for a coffee in Richmond all those years ago. Uh, one of my great learnings is the coffee we had the day after the Ireland-Italy game in Dublin a few years a few years ago where we were spotted out for a coffee. But yep. just the sharing and debriefing of what you saw in us and how that actually helped me going back to the Italian team and actually saying, well, this is why this happened in the game because this is the picture we we showed and this is what Ireland were taking advantage of. And uh, I think what people don't see, they see a lot of the competition that goes on, the war words and the media, all this sort of stuff. What they don't see is it's a very small group of people who... <laughs> it's his media. It's his media studies. It's his media studies. I'll tell That's you. Exactly right. I, I thought I, he had it. I'm very low key. It's, I, they, they, he's he's let it slip today. He's a teacher of media studies. Um, but I think what people don't see is actually the camaraderie that's there and the way people share the whole time. There's uh, unbelievable competition, as you'd expect at the very highest level. But there's also a real sharing knowledge and and it's, and it's a willingness to share amongst each other. And Joe, you coming on today, giving your time like this, um, is exceptional. It's just another example of, uh, of of what happens at the at the highest level. So on behalf of everyone from the Rugby Football Union, a massive massive thank you. And hopefully, when self isolation yeah. does finish in Ireland. I'll get to see you for that <laughs> coffee again. That'd be brilliant, All right. mate. Good to, good to chat again, Eddie. And, uh, good on you, Joe. We'll get a quiet glass of something at some stage, I'm sure.
We will, mate. Yeah. Coffee okay. with me. Coffee Thanks, with me. Boys. Red wine with Eddie. <laughs> yeah. Talk to you later. All right. Cheers. See you, boys. Thanks. Thank you. Cheers. See ya. Thanks, Joe. Right. Cheers, Connor. Our thanks to Joe Schmidt for joining Eddie and me. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Next week, we've got an Olympic gold medal winning head coach for you in the shape of Danny Kerry, who guided Team GB to gold in hockey in Rio. Remember to keep your reviews and ratings coming for a chance to win a signed England shirt at the end of the series. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.